0: All right. you're good. You just got it filled up. Mm-hmm. You're ready? Oh, I don't have to no go ahead. Start talking. Uh we are here does exist? Um we are on lesson 21 today. And uh we have been if you have been with us the whole time or even part of the time, um, we have for the last uh, 30 weeks. That's about uh, seven months. 10%. So yeah, four times. So yeah, that's about seven months. So for the last seven eight months, we have been uh, working our way through these these videos, and uh, he has taken us from uh, very uh, basic fundamental uh, examinations about how The universe uh, began and and, uh, all of the support for that that he has, that indicates that it's uh, nothing other than what the Bible says it is. uh, All the way up through, we've looked at demonology, the paranormal, we've looked at miracles, we've looked at uh, archaeology, uh, we've looked at how science in so many ways supports the Bible, and the Bible supports science. am i still on or is that on okay um and so now what he is doing these next two lessons is he's talking to us about his personal story call it testimonial call it whatever you want but what what he is saying is uh to us with with this uh with this particular lesson these particular lessons and maybe mm, several uh, before we close out here is the idea that each of us uh, is responsible for our own salvation um, we all know the passage work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and I believe he may even mention that one in this lesson today um, but there is a responsibility we can't rely on other individuals to get us to heaven to teach us God's word um, solely if there's uh, there's something that we have to do on our part to take that in and not only take that in, but also practice uh, what we learn. And uh, in, in my study, personal study, it has uh, surprised me about how much emphasis there is in the uh, New Testament on not only uh, coming to, uh, you know, the original uh, knowledge of your sins and uh, repenting and confessing and being baptized and, and having faith, the faith that we are supposed to have in God's word, but there is an uh, there is an unbelievable number of passages which stress the importance of growth. That we can't just sit back and rest on our laurels, so to speak. We can't just sit back and and um, take in what comes to us. Through our hour on Sunday morning, uh, or our two hours if we come to class, um, and and uh, maybe even even another hour or ha- another hour or two hours during during the week that that's going to get us so far. And, and I'm not judging anyone for that. I'm just saying the Bible it 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 suggests is is looking for more than that. We are required to grow, and the only way to grow is to involve ourselves. Um, In God's word. So what he's going to do today is uh, tell us, start his story, his two part story about coming out of atheism, why he uh, is no longer an atheist. And he will, he will tell you that uh, he was one of the more devout atheists. And, um, and so uh, I'll just let him tell you his story. Uh, We'll go ahead and start. We'll have a few brief comments at the end, uh, but we'll probably be done a little early today.
1: This particular lesson is one that is not easy for me to present. But I think we've reached a stage in this series of videos, if you've been watching from the first video on, where there's a need for me to share a little bit more about where I'm coming from. I would like to mention to you that we have this lesson in a little booklet, which is called Why I Left Atheism. And if you would like a copy of it, you can contact us and we'll be more than happy to send you one to read to share with someone else. As I tell you in all honesty, if I had my druthers, I'd rather not ever present this lesson. I don't think any of us like to look back in our lives at a time when we have done some things and said some things and been a part of some things that we're not very proud of. But I have a reason for presenting this lesson every time I'm given an opportunity. When I first became a Christian, one of the elders in the congregation where I was worshiping came to me and he said, John, he said, nobody's totally useless. If you can't do anything else, you can at least serve as a bad example. <laughs> and I guess, to some extent, that's what I'm trying to do in this discussion. I want to ask you for the next 30 minutes or so to look at your own life. Now, now, don't look at your maid or your child or your friend or your parent or your neighbor, but But look at your own life and see if you don't find some things in your life that are similar to things that have been a part of my life. You know, I don't think we ever get so old and so wise that we don't have room to grow. And perhaps one of the best ways to grow is to profit by the mistakes that others have made. And so it's with that purpose and with that intent that I present this lesson to you this morning. Not not really as a testimonial. I would not want to be held to the literacy of this narrative. I wasn't taking notes as an atheist. The concepts I'm very sure about, and, and the concepts were what will be the most useful to you. You know, one of the things that I frequently run into is that I have religious people especially who will come to me and look at me rub skeptically and say, were you really an atheist? and The question is asked as if somehow someone like me is not supposed to exist. And I want to start out in this presentation by saying to you, without any question at all, that for the first 20 years of my life or thereabouts, I was totally and completely convinced there is no God. I believed it. I lived it. I had no doubt about it. And I think it's a mistake to assume that there's no such thing as an atheist. There are lots and lots of people in this world, for lots and lots of different reasons, that are genuinely and sincerely convinced that God does not exist. Now you might say to me at this point, well why? Why were you an atheist? And right away I've got something I'd like to encourage you to apply to your own life. I was an atheist perhaps for the same reason that you're a believer in God today, if you are. Because I've been brainwashed. You see, my earliest recollection of anything related to God was my mother saying to me, do you really believe there's an old man floating around in the sky, zapping things into existence here upon the earth? Do you really think there's a hole I'll be dropped in and burned eternally if I don't live just the way some preacher thinks I ought to? Do you really think that building down on the corner full of all those hypocrites could be anything useful and functional called the church? You see, my mother and father were not believers in God. And I never questioned what my parents told me. And so by the time I was a ripe old age of eight, I was saying to people, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. But before you condemn me too quickly, may I ask you if you're a believer in God today for the same reason? Do you believe in God because mommy and daddy believed in God and when you really get right down to it, you never had any other choice? Or as one young man said to me one time, I believe in God because daddy will be the child of me if I don't. That's no foundation of faith. God doesn't want a bunch of robots walking around regurgitating the traditions of their ancestors. God wants people that are intellectually and emotionally and mentally and psychologically and spiritually and every other way involved in their faith. Yeah, I had an inherited faith. What's the basis of yours? Do you really know why you believe? what you believe. Now, if you've been watching all these videos that we have, you have been seeing up until this point a number of evidences for the existence of God and the credibility of Christianity. And I'm not going to repeat all that stuff. In future videos, we'll talk about some other questions like evolution and demonology, and a lot of other peripheral issues, but they really don't have much to do with the existence of God. But what I'd like to share with you right now are the other things that happened to me, the more personal things. For one thing, a woman entered my life. A lot of things start that way, don't they? This young lady was by all means the most bullheaded, the most stubborn, the most cast-iron-willed individual I'd ever met in all my life. Now, I can make all those derogatory statements because some seven years later, or thereabouts, I married her. But for the first time in my life, I ran into somebody who really stood for something. Intellectually. Morally. And otherwise. Now, she couldn't answer my questions. I'd throw my best atheist argument at her, and she couldn't answer me. And then about three weeks later, when I'd forgotten the whole issue, she'd come back with some crazy Bible quotation I'd never heard of. It used to frustrate me no end. So I finally decided to put a stop to that nonsense. I'd had a Bible I'd stolen from a motel, and I decided to read it. Now, I wasn't going to learn anything. That wasn't my purpose. I just wanted to show her that nobody but a first-class idiot could believe that the Bible was anything more than myths and fairy tales. I'd never really read the Bible as an atheist. Oh, I had read parts of it to prove it wrong. I could quote whole sections I thought were especially stupid. But I had really never sat down and studied the Bible to see if it had any logic or any relevance or any value or any meaning to life. So I started reading. I had a notebook. I was going to write down all the dumb, stupid, idiotic mistakes that were in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I had decided I was going to write a book. The book was going to be called All the Stupidity of the Bible. I was going to make money. So I started reading. And over the next two or three or four weeks, I read the Bible through cover to cover. But I looked down at my notebook, and I didn't have anything written in my notebook. And I thought, oh, I must have read that too fast. So I went back, and I read the Bible again. During my sophomore year in college, I read the Bible through cover to cover over three times for the specific purpose of showing all the dumb, stupid, idiotic scientific mistakes that were in the Bible. And at the end of that time, and to this day, I could not and cannot find one single statement that I can stand on and say, Look, here is an obvious, stupid mistake that proves the Bible was written by ignorant men living. In an ignorant age you got a scientific mistake in the bible i'd like for you to show it to me i have challenged people throughout this country throughout canada throughout europe to show me one single solitary academic scientific mistake in the pages of god's word i don't believe it's there but you know what was happening i was beginning to realize that everything my mother had told me about God. And everything that those guys on radio and television had said about the church were not at all what the Bible said about God or about the church. My mother said to me, God is an old man in the sky with a long white beard and big white flowing robes. Is that your concept of God? Have you created God in your image instead of the other way around? We spent quite a bit of time on that in an earlier video, and I don't want to belabor the point. But, you know, even as an ignorant atheist, I could read things like, God is the Spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. Even I could read that and understand that God was not an old man in the sky. Even I could read things like, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. Flesh and blood didn't do it, but my Father, who art in heaven. Even I could read that and understand that God was not a physical fleshly being. What, what's your concept? I began to recognize that the Christian life was not altruistic. You know, when I was a little kid, my mother used to say to me, now, if you ever become a Christian, you can't ever own anything. You can't ever take a vacation. You can't ever smile. You have to frown all the time, hunch over, hold your hands like this, and take little bitty steps. <laughs> well, I didn't want that kind of a life. But when I read the Bible, I didn't get that kind of a picture. I read passages like Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 28, where it talks about husbands loving their own wives. And it says, For no man ever yet hated his flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it. I read about the Ethiopian eunuch. They went on his way rejoicing because he had found Jesus Christ. Have you got a callus on your chin from your Christianity? Has it been dragging the ground that much? That's not Christianity. Christianity is not a morbid, negative, miserable, confining, unhappy way of life. Christianity is a happy, free, joyous way of life. What's your concept? I began to recognize the hypocrisy was not. Confined to religion. <laughs> you know, as an atheist, I used to believe that every hypocrite in the world was in a church pew on Sunday morning. And that automatically meant anybody not in a church view was not a hypocrite. <laughs> I know what changed my thinking on that. I had a buddy named Bill that used to work with me in organized atheism. Man, we were a good team. The cuss words I didn't know he knew. The abusive arguments I didn't come up with, he used to come up with. Man, we used to chew them up and spit them out. And I came home on military leave one time, and the first thing I heard when I hit town was that old Bill was in the hospital. He had a ruptured appendix. He was in bad shape. So I went up to see him. And I opened the door of the hospital room, and I looked in, and there he was on his knees, praying to God. Now, I'd almost been killed twice in the service. Never scared me into believing in God. So I stood at the door of that hospital room screaming at him, you hypocrite, you, you don't want to hear what I said, until they forcibly dragged me out of that hospital room. And you know, I didn't understand it at the time. But I've gradually come to understand something that you may never have thought about. And that is that hypocrisy is a function of humanity, not religion. You deal with hypocrites at the filling station. You deal with hypocrites at the grocery store. You deal with hypocrites on the job. You deal with hypocrites at school. You deal with hypocrites on the golf course. Maybe more there than anywhere else. Now, now you don't quit buying groceries because the grocer says one thing and does another, do you? You don't quit your job because your employer tells you to do something they themselves wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, do you? You don't deprive yourself or your child of a good education because a teacher teaches one thing and lives something else, do you? You don't quit playing golf because your buddy takes a stroke in the rough and doesn't count it when he thinks you didn't see it. Sure there's hypocrisy in the church because there's human beings in the church. And any time you deal with human beings, you're going to deal with hypocrisy. You want to get away from hypocrisy? Dig yourself a 20-foot hole in the backyard, jump in the bottom and let somebody cover you up with 10 feet of dirt and even then you'll be sitting down there on the bottom of that hole with one hypocrite. (laughs) There isn't a one of us breathing air that is as consistent as we ought to be, but the man or the woman or the boy or the girl that stands back and says, I'm not going to serve God. I'm not going to get involved in the church. I'm not going to be active in God's belief. I There's hypocrites in the church. I'm not going to be a part of that. My friend, you're just plain logically inconsistent. You don't use that kind of thinking anywhere else in your life. How in the world can you do it in your relationship to God? Well, during the time that all this is going on, I'm beginning to realize, well, maybe there is something to this God business, but all gods are the same. The Bible's not anything special, so I got a copy of every great religious book I could find. I got a copy of the Koran, I got a copy of the Vedas, I got a copy of the Saints of Buddha, the Zoroastrian tablets, the writings of Baha'u'llah. But you know, that didn't last a very long period of time because every mistake that I had expected to find in the Bible, I did find in these other religious books. And we've already discussed that in some of our previous videos if you've been watching the whole series. And if not, you can go back and look at them. But all of a sudden, I, I had a conviction that, in fact, maybe it was the God kind of the Bible that we were talking about. But now I had another problem Is anybody following the Bible? And so I started visiting every religious organization I could find. And in southern Indiana, where I lived at the time, that was a lot of churches. Now, I didn't know much about the Bible. Well, I thought I did, but I didn't. But I'd go up to a minister, and, I, and I'd open the Bible and say, Now, what do you think this passage means? And I almost get one or two kinds of answers to that question. They'd either say, Well, uh, let me tell you what the great scholar so-and-so said about that. And I'd say, thank you, and I'd leave. I've been confused with the so-called scholars long enough. Or they'd say, well, it doesn't mean what it says. Here's what it means. You know, I don't think God's an idiot. I think God can give us a book we can understand. Went up to one man one time, a minister. I said, what do you think this passage means? He looked me right straight in the eye. He said, Oh, he said, we don't think in this church. Well, see, that's exactly the problem of organized religion that we have. And we've had people like Jim Jones and Marshall Waite and on and on down the lines, David Koresh, that have been able to do awful things because people weren't doing their own reading and their own study. One day, I happened to be going down 4th Street in Indiana. And I came to the corner of 4th and Lincoln Street, and on the northeast side of the intersection, there was an old, cruddy, broken-down limestone building that had written across the top of it, The Church. And I had some friends that I knew went in that place, and they were, but I'm looking at that, and I'm saying, well, what kind of egomaniacs we got here? And there were people going in and out of this building, and I caught a guy by the arm. I said, Hey, what's the name of this denomination? He said, It's not a denomination, it's just the church. We're just trying to do what the Bible tells us to do. And I said, Come on, don't give me that stuff, whatever you want to call it. What's the name of this outfit? And he said, Hey, it's just the church. We're just following the Bible. I thought, Well, that's pretty weird. Not too long after that, a friend of mine who was a member of that church took me to the services, and I never will forget my first experience at that church. The man that happened to be speaking that evening was a man by the name of Ray Munsey. Ray Munsey was a history department head at Harding University for many, many years. Great scholar, great preacher. But the first words that I ever heard and what I later learned was the church that's described in the Bible were these words. He stood up there and he said, now I want to tell you something, he said, don't you ever Believe anything any preacher says. I thought, well, that sounds pretty reasonable. He went on, he said, don't you believe anything elder bishop says. I thought, oh, this is getting better than that. He said, don't you believe anything anybody says in the name of religion unless you open the Bible and see that what is being said is right and consistent with what's written in the Bible. And I thought... <laughs> He doesn't mean that. So after services, I cornered him. Actually, I think I scared him a little bit because I was a pretty ugly looking character at that point. Still am, but I was really ugly then. I opened the Bible and I said, now, what do you think this passage means? And he said, well, why don't you read it for me? So I read it. He said, now, what do you think that means? I told him what I thought it meant. He said, well, if that's what you think that means, it sure is what I do. I said, how'd that happen? And I went to another passage. You know, he did that to me three times in a row. And I went out there that evening saying to myself, if I ever do become a Christian, that's the kind of Christian I'm going to be. The kind of Christian who won't believe something just because some great preacher tells me that's what I'm supposed to believe. The kind of Christian who won't believe something just because that's what we've always taught about that. And you know something? If I understand the Bible correctly, that's something God expects of every one of us. Do you realize that one of these days you're going to stand before God just like I am? (laughs) And if I might use an old Indiana basketball cliche on you, when that day comes, folks, it is going to be one-on-one. There isn't going to be any preacher standing over there spouting Scripture for me or for you. There isn't going to be any elder or bishop standing over there saying, Now, God, this one deserves special consideration. It's going to be me and God. It's going to be you and God. Why do you think we read things like work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Philippians 2 and verse 12. If what we're supposed to do is to listen to what some preacher says and regurgitate that. Why do you think we read things like study to show yourselves approved unto God? A workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly divided in the word of truth, if what we're supposed to do is to listen to some denominational tradition and regurgitate that. My advice to you is don't believe you anything I say. Don't believe anything anybody says. In the name of religion, unless you open the Bible and see that what is being said is right and consistent with what's written in the pages of the Bible. Now, that was a long, long time before I became a Christian, but it had a real impact on my life. And I think one of the great problems in today's religious world is that people have hired other people to do their biblical study for them. We go to church because we want to be entertained instead of participating. We really haven't understood the concept of developing a relationship with God, and we especially have not seen what marvelous beautiful things. Having that relationship with God and engaging in that worship and being a part of the church can do actively in our lives. And so in the next video, I'd like to share with you the straw that broke this camel's back and how it led me to find what I believe is the true church. Does God Exist is an educational program which attempts to provide evidence that man can logically believe in God and that the Christian system presented in the New Testament is the best option for successful living. We offer materials free and on loan. Contact us by mail, fax, or email for a catalog to request materials or just to ask questions. Does God exist may be the most important question you will ever ask.
0: So uh, you heard what he had to say, at least in the first half of his presentation on on why he left atheism. He had some fantastic points uh, in there. Um, I know if if you're listening to this, more than likely um, you um, are a believer. That may not be true. We may have some listeners that That aren't that are as skeptical as he was or at least somewhere in that direction I don't know how you could be more skeptical <laughs> than uh mr. Clayton was uh, in his youth, but the bible is is an amazing amazing piece of work um just just to take a step back and and look at what it is um Sixty-six books. How many authors? Thirty-some different authors. I can't remember exactly. Um, one theme. How can that? How can that be? Um, how can thirty-some odd people? I wish I knew that number right offhand, so I could be more exact. Um, over the course of i think about uh, 2000 years 1800 to 2000 now 1500 1500 years or so um yeah it goes well yeah we were 1500 years from four hundred, fourteen hundred 1400 to 100 uh, AD yeah we just started writing the period around 14 1450 yeah. Know, yeah i was I was thinking Old Testament, 1400 to 400 BC, and I was adding those two together to get 18. That's the wrong way to go figure that. Uh, English was my major, by the way. Um, So how can uh, that many people uh, across that many years writing in in so many different eras and covering so many different subjects and and history all be tied together so tightly uh, with one theme? Um, how can you take all of the Old Testament and then take the New Testament? And as Jesus says, this fulfills all of this. This replaces this because we now have a new law. We now have a new system that, um, older, uh, Judaic, um, Israel-focused uh, piece of literature had its purposes, had its benefit, but if it had been all there is, then why would there need to be another one? And he says there needs to be another one, and so we have uh, the New Testament. There is, uh, along with that theme, a a connectivity that you can find and see and read in the Bible as a whole. You can see prophecies that were made. And once again, we should probably stipulate for the nonbeliever, if you can trust that the Old Testament is a historical document as well as a religious document, which I think you can, um, there were prophecies that were made that came true in uh, Jesus. I think there's something like, uh, I want to say over 100 of them just in the last week of his life. (laughs) uh were fulfilled from the old testament um so it's a, it's a it's a wonderful wonderful book we we went through before we started this series a a study of types biblical types where we looked at old testament people and institutions and and, and things of, of that nature and found that they had a, a an extremely strong connection and comparison to things in the new testament israel the church uh, old testament characters jesus the tabernacle jesus elijah john the baptist and 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 those those comparisons that are too strong to be coincidental they were intended by god god controlled those things so that we in the 21st century can read this ancient document and be impressed totally impressed with all that we are saying right now about how wonderful and marvelous this book is—it's got history, it's got love stories, it's got violence, it's—it's it's just got just about every subject uh, known to man that we encounter in our daily lives. But it shows the history of man and how God has related to man across that history in those ways. There's a a book that I read that I have mentioned in uh, this Wednesday night class before. I think it's I tried to log into Kindle and I I got blocked out because I can't remember my Amazon password. But um, I think the name of it is the man of Galilee. And what he does is the author, he takes the Jewish mindset at during the first century. Everything that he can read and understand from a historical standpoint about who the Jews were, what their thinking was at that time, what their religion revolved around, um, how they uh, conceived of life and relationships. And he says there is no way that man, first century man, could conceive of a Jesus Christ. He was so different. And I I think I mentioned at the time, if you took all of the Old Testament prophecies and laid them, you know, one next to the other and tried to compose a picture of Messiah. How different would Jesus look to that picture? It, It would be phenomenal. They were they were given a promise. Of a Messiah. They talked about, you know, Isaiah talks about Prince of Peace and you know uh, all of that, but those are those are kind of vague notions. Uh, we have Isaiah the fifty third chapter, which talks about uh, some of the things that he went through uh, during the time he was on the earth and and uh, suffered on our behalf, but we hear nothing of what his teachings were all about. That comes in the New Testament, and to have the authors. Okay, how many authors in the New Testament, uh, Chris? Oh, man. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Luke <laughs> and Acts, two. Paul, John, James, Peter, Jude. Two. Seven or ten. Nine, nine, ten, something like that. Once again, um, writing across a span of about 50 years or so in different places, um, give us the most complete picture that we need. And that we might ever uh, be able to use of the Son of God who came to this earth to die for our sins. For first century man at that time, he couldn't have conceived of someone like Jesus who taught the way he did. Remember, people said, nobody teaches like this man. And he didn't. So for writers of the New Testament, to all together conceive of this very consistent character that is presented in the New Testament, um, it just does not make sense that it's not driven and controlled by something above and beyond those individuals. And history tells us that those guys died believing that he is who he says he is. Absolutely. You don't die for something you know is a lie. So, so, given the fact that the Bible is such an impressive document, the question that uh, he, uh, that Clayton throws out to us, why don't you study it more? Why do you believe what you believe? Is it because someone led you to your faith? That's good. But notice what... Uh, Notice well, first of all, what second corinthians um one thirteen says you know people say, "Oh the Bible's so difficult to read, you know that's that's why they had to you know put it in latin and 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 the Catholic Church had to interpret it for us and and so forth. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, and uh, some think it's the third because there's a reference to an earlier letter that we don't have a record of. And he says, for we write nothing else to you than what you can read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. Now, was he just talking about this letter? I doubt it. Clayton even mentioned, why would God set up a whole system of stuff and then confuse us by making it difficult to understand and comprehend. He created us and he created our minds. He knows what we're capable of. He has given us a document that, as Paul says, you can read and understand. Over in Ephesians 3, he says uh, the mystery, which is this mystery about about Christ and, and, and his uh, becoming man and revealing his word to us. He says, it was revealed to me. I'm giving it to you. And he expects the people to to understand that, to read and understand. And I was just talking this passage about this passage with Chris. Uh, I didn't bring my watch today. I need to keep an eye it's on 440, time. Yeah, four forty. For the um, there is a passage in First uh, Timothy one. I'm just going to read the uh, first four verses there, and then talk about uh, verse four. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity this is good and acceptable in the sight of our of god our savior this god our savior desires that all men to be saved desires all men to be saved and To come to a knowledge of the truth. Why didn't he say come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved? Wouldn't that be the most logical sequence of events? Isn't that what the rest of the scripture, the scriptures teach? That we first hear. That we believe. That we act on that belief by uh, changing our hearts and changing our actions. Through repentance, that we confess that all important confession that, yes, I believe Jesus is the son of God. And then completing those acts of faith, those things that demonstrate we truly believe by rendering ourselves to baptism, where we come in contact with the blood of Jesus, and where our sins are truly forgiven. Here it says, though, he want, God wants all men to be saved, go through that, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, you could say, okay, he's just repeating that. It's a parenthetical. You would have to come to a knowledge of the truth to be saved. If you look at the Greek words, there are two words, two Greek words. Um, that we in, in render as knowledge. There's gnosos, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the word that we have called uh, agnostic. Clayton was an atheist. He said, there is no God. The agnostic says, nah, I don't know. It could be, it couldn't be. I'm not going to declare one way or the other. I just don't know. I'm without knowledge. Agnosos um this term though is epinosis or gnosis um which means an advanced knowledge above and beyond knowledge now what does that say about that verse it means or it says to me or could mean i'm not just going to say flat out but it could mean that God wants all of us to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved as a result of that knowledge. But he also wants us to have an extended educational experience where the Bible is concerned. There are numerous passages. If you if you go and um, Google growth in the Bible, You are going to find numerous passages which talk about the necessity of growth, the importance of growth, the command to grow. So what do we do with that? We go to worship on Sunday morning. We might go to class. We sit. We take in. We didn't prepare ahead of time, even though we knew what topic or what passage, or or uh, even had the the lesson in uh, before us before we came. It's Mark six fourteen through twenty nine Sunday. <laughs> Mark Mark six fourteen through twenty nine. So if you want to just write that down and read it ahead of time, that way you can check to see if Chris is go. teaching the truth when he presents it from from the pulpit. Remember what Clayton said. That guy who was essential in in Clayton's conversion said, don't believe anybody. Don't believe your preacher. Don't believe, uh, you know, the most widely respected Christian you know. Find it yourself. Search the scriptures daily. Do everything you can to make sure that you know why you believe what you believe. God wants us to grow. There are commands, grow in spirit and in truth. Um, numerous passages there. He, he mentioned two of them. Uh, one of them was Second uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, work out your own self. No, that's Philippians. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Second uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 was... I show yourself approved. Show yourself approved. Study. Study to show yourself approved. I'm surprised he didn't uh, do my favorite one, which you if you've been around me much, uh, you've heard me say. Uh, First Peter 315 is is another one that just drives this point home. It says this. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's a command. Sanctify him in your hearts. Well, how do you do that? By always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you about the hope that you have. Yet, do it with gentleness and reverence. If I can't tell people why I believe other than uh, what I believe. Other than just say, well, I was raised in a church and I believe what my parents believe, or um, I heard a good sermon one time that convinced me that it was uh, it was God's will. Um, Anything other than I have read God's word. I have studied God's word. I know what God's word says on a wide variety of topics. And I can teach someone the truth about how to become a Christian and how to live a Christian life. If you can't do that, and you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you can't do that, number one, there's another passage says, that don't be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I don't think I'm combining two of them there. I could be. But one way to be ashamed is to not be able to teach God's will to other people. So what we have to do is work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. The fear and trembling part of that is um, akin to Hebrews four one. Where he has just talked in Hebrews 3 about how the Israelites took that journey. I think it's somewhere around a two-year journey to get up to Canaan. And we're on the verge of going into that promised land. Which had been that that land that had been promised to them by God. The, The spies go in. They say it is a great land. But we can't take it. They're too strong. God had been providing for them for two years, almost two years in the wilderness to get up there. And they said, we can't do it. And the majority sided with those 10 rather than the two who said we can take it. And so God sanctioned them. He said, "Okay, you don't want this land. You don't want me to help you take this land. You won't take this land. Go back out into the the wilderness until this generation dies off. And we'll have a new set of people who have a stronger faith. So in the third chapter, he talks about how the Israelites blew it. And he says in Hebrews 4, 1, take heed, be careful, fear, be fearful lest you fall into that same um, error of unbelief. When we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is the fear, it is that respect, it is that reality that we can lose our salvation if we don't appreciate it, if we don't value it, if we don't grow our knowledge of God and his his word. So many passages. That talk about the importance of growth, and the necessity of growth, and the command to grow. So, one of the things that we can take from Clay, uh, Clayton's lesson here uh, is he was a guy who was going to show and prove that this Bible stuff was was junk. Not only could he not do that, he ended up converting to Christianity, realizing that. Since you can't refute it, at least for he for him, I have to believe it. And I think that's, that's a, a pretty good uh, way of, of looking at things. Um, but in order to believe it, we have to know it. And so please, um, I just encourage everyone to um, do what you can to study. To show yourself approved. To be able to offer a defense. An argument. Reasons. Passages. For the hope that lies within you. If you have a hope of heaven. It's got to be based on something other than hearsay. Hearsay is not reliable. God's word is. We need to know it. We need to study it. Next week, uh, we will uh, have the second part of his Why I Left Atheism uh, lesson, and uh, we'll hear more from him as to the steps that that he took um, and what he went through to to leave that um, commitment that there is no God and that the Bible is a bunch of bunk to being a Christian that has offered his entire adult life for the last 30 to 40 years. He has uh, taught these lessons. He has debated atheists uh, all across the world. And um, I'd say he's pretty convinced. (laughs) So we'll see you next week. See you guys.